seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. I have the passage for you with a, a short outline in the bulletin as well. For this summer, we are going to plan a huge celebration celebration of all the Lord has provided for us, but especially being happy about the retirement of the mortgage. And at that great celebration, we'll probably do it in June sometime is what we're guesstimating right now would be the time frame. Um, we can burn the mortgage statement and we can burn our masks too. That will be fun. Looking forward to that coming in June, I'm hoping. So we'll keep you abreast of when that timetable uh, is unfolding or how it's unfolding. We are in Ephesians, and we are in the midst of this section of Ephesians that builds off the beginning. The beginning, the first three chapters, is the, the foundation of who we are as new people in Christ and a new community in Christ. It's because of our true identity in Jesus that we can live out these ethical uh, teachings that Paul's directing as concerning. It's not a way to become God's children. We are God's children. And with that renewal and with the Holy Spirit being filled with the Spirit, we can live out and reflect God's righteousness and his glory. And we are in a section now that is extremely practical. We're talking about family, marriage and family, um, husbands and wives, children and parents, and then it will go even to more practical, uh, additionally practical uh, material on how we relate even with our employers. So this is uh, very relevant stuff for us in God's Word. And really what could be more rubber meets the road than marriage? Last week we spent time on the wife's, the wife's role in marriage. Now we're going to focus on the husband's role. And then the next sermon will be on Christ and the church. You'll see how we'll be dealing with that in the text, but I want to spend a special sermon just on Christ's relationship to the church that will serve to bolster even what we're studying today in God's Word. So I will read God's Holy Word, Ephesians 5, starting at verse 22, and I'll read down to verse 33. Our special focus is on the role of the husband. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, please help us to understand clearly the message of your word that is before us. Where our thinking has been skewed by the spirit of the age, please gently bring us in line with your timeless word. Please grant us your Holy Spirit's special help 
to comprehend and to apply the teaching of your word, especially this passage that is so practical concerning marriage and so profound concerning what it teaches about Christ and the church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we are in Ephesians 5, and with marriage as the metaphor for Christ and the church, we have clear and helpful direction for wives and for husbands. We have substantive teaching on two things, marriage and Christ in the church. We have them both working together, and we take this week the role of the husband in particular. Verse 25 of Ephesians 5 captures it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's a story that maybe you are familiar with. I heard it as a college student some years ago, and I've read it many times since. They met as students at Columbia Bible College. Robertson McQuilkin remembers sitting behind her in chapel, watching Muriel Webendorfer run her lovely artistic fingers through her lovely brown hair. As they began spending time together, he discovered Muriel was delightful, smart, and gifted, and just a great lover of people and more fun than you can imagine. He proposed on Valentine's Day in 1948, and they married in August of the same year. For the next three decades, they raised six children and served God together in a variety of posts, including 12 years as missionaries in Japan. In 1968, they returned to the United States, and Robertson became the president of Columbia International University. Muriel taught at the college, spoke at women's conferences, appeared on television, and was featured on a radio program that was considered for national syndication. The first sign that their lives were about to change appeared in 1978 during a trip to Florida to visit some friends. Muriel loved to tell stories and punctuated them with her infectious laughter. But while they were driving, she began telling a story that she had just finished a few minutes earlier. Honey, you just told that, Robertson said. But she laughed and went on. That's funny, Robertson thought. That's never happened before. But the same time, the same time of the problem, the problem occurred again. And with increasing frequency, Muriel began to find it difficult to plan menus and organization for the home. She would speak at public functions and lose her train of thought. She had to give up her radio show. In 1981, when she was hospitalized for tests on her heart, a doctor told Robertson, you may need to think about the possibility of Alzheimer's disease. It was hard to believe, since the disease which causes progressive degeneration of the brain does not usually strike someone so young. But the diagnosis was confirmed by other doctors. As the next few years went by, Robertson watched helplessly as his fun, creative, loving partner slowly faded away. Muriel knew that she was having problems, but she never understood that it was Alzheimer's. One thing about forgetting is that you forget that you forget. So she never seemed to suffer too much with it. Muriel found it more and more difficult to express herself. She stopped speaking in complete sentences, relying on phrases or words. Though she continued to recognize her husband and children, she lived in Robertson's words, in happy oblivion to most everything else. There was one phrase that she said often, however, I love you. Robertson learned how, uh, learned much about love from Muriel and from God during those 
first few years of her disease. When he was away from her, she became distressed and would often walk the half mile to his office several times a day to look for him. Once Robertson was helping to take her shoes off and discovered her feet were bloody from walking. He was amazed by her love for him and wondered if he loved God enough to be so driven to spend time with him. By 1990, Robertson knew that he needed to make a decision about his career. The school needed him 100%, and Muriel needed him 100%. In the end, Robertson says the choice to step down from his position was easy for him to make. Perhaps the best explanation can be found in the letter that he wrote to Columbia International University and its constituency to explain his decision. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time when she is with me. And she's contented almost none of the time when I'm away from her. This is not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So, as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel. She is a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration, I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. When Robertson accepted his new assignment, he thought that his public ministry was ending. Instead, it transformed us into something altogether different. That's when I became aware of him. In 1992, two years after he had left that position as president, he started to speak at various places, and he spoke at the college I attended. He would go for two days a week to speak at various places to talk about marriage and the importance of marriage, and then he'd be with her for those other five days. The story of his act of love spread across the country. Pastors mentioned it from the pulpit, leading couples to renew their wedding vows and so on. Robertson relied on God to give him the strength to meet his wife's needs week after week, month after month. And when people asked him if he had ever tired of caring for Muriel, he would say, no, I love to care for her. She is my precious. One special memory is of Valentine's Day, 1995. He was riding on an exercise bicycle at the foot of her bed and thinking of past Valentine's Days, including the one in 1948 when he asked her for her hand in marriage. Muriel woke up at that moment, smiled, and suddenly spoke for the first time in months and just said, love, love, love. Robertson rushed over to give his wife a hug. Honey, you really do love me, don't you? He said. In response came the words, I'm nice, her way of saying yes. Those were the last words that Muriel ever said aloud. Robertson continued to love his wife this way until the end of her life. By the time their 50th anniversary passed in 1999, she had lost all ability to function on her own and spent each day lying in bed. Muriel's last day on this earth was September 19, 2003. In a letter to friends, Robertson wrote, For 55 years, Muriel was flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. So it's like ripping the ripping of my flesh and deeper, my very bones, Robertson said. But there is also profound gratitude. 
For ten years I have delighted in recalling happy memories. I still do. No regrets. I'm grateful. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's look together at this passage and ask and answer a very important question that will take the bulk of our time. Then a second question that's swifter because of what we'll cover in the first question's answer. And then finally, a question that will lead us to next sermon. First, what is the special role of the husband? We discovered the special role of the wife as a helper, one who submits to the leadership of her husband. Now, what is the special role of the husband? It says in verse 23 of our passage, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself its savior. The word here in Greek is kephale, and it means a delegated authority. In its context, it means an authority given. It's not just simply source, it's authority that's been delegated. And it has particular dynamics to what that word head means. We know because it parallels with Christ, who's the head of the church, the one who leads the church, the one who directs the church. We know also because of all the times the word is used, it's used in this exact way, this delegation of special authority, leadership. If we were to characterize headship biblically in this passage, we'd say there are three dynamics to it that the husband carries out in this role. First, the husband is a leader. That's the first dynamic of headship. The second is that he is savior. I mean small s now. You might think sacrificer. And the third is discipler. One who nurtures. Leader, savior, discipler. These are the terms that are attributed to the husband as God has ordained marriage. Husband as a leader. That's the first dynamic that we should consider. One who leads his wife and by extension his family in a spiritual direction. Now, every head of the household or heads of the household necessarily lead the family in some spiritual direction. That happens. But this is to be intentional and pointed and according to what God lays out for him personally and corporately for his family. The husband is a leader in the marriage. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Leadership is what is being spoken of here. Bringing the family along. Verse 24. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The wives following the leadership of their husband. Now headship in this sense, this kind of leadership is not about dominance at all. Headship is not lording one's position of authority over another. Headship is not passivity on the other hand either, where you just ignore your responsibility to lead. It's not avoidance of responsibility. Headship is a leadership assignment that we receive and seek to carry out by God's grace. That's what it means to lead. I used the illustration last week about a coach of a team assigning a captain from the teammates. Equals in the team, but someone is delegated authority from the coach to lead in a certain direction that the coach deems best. That's the role of the husband. He's delegated authority from God to lead the family as God has him to lead. Now, we'll see what that leadership looks like, but there can be no doubt he has the role of leader of his wife and his family. Now, he has the great benefit of her help and her wisdom, her perspective, her contribution in that regard. But he's responsible before God to lead the family. 
headship is ultimately an, ex- an expression of God-given authority. Paul's defining the husband's authority in terms of Christ's exercise of authority over the church. And what is that like? That is sacrificial. That is loving. That's the definition of loving. That's a shepherd caring for the flock. The husband is called to Christ-like leadership, which is, by definition, a servant leadership. The role of the husband, starting with his wife, is to lead all the members of his household to fully apprehend the Lord's grace in their life. And I want to say this as a bit of a let-off to the brothers, because this can become very heavy. I cannot lead like this. Well, spoil it down this simply, brothers. Your job is to lead your family to understand the grace of God in Christ. That's your role. Now, guess what? Some of that's going to be evidenced by how lame you are. And I mean that in the truest sense of the word, how weak you are, how much you struggle with this in your own. Your struggle to apprehend the grace of God to you will be what you bring your family along in. It's help them understand what they have in Christ, who they have in Christ. You're not their savior with a big S. You're a small S savior, meaning you point to the one who is the savior. That's your role. Brian Chappell speaks wonderfully on the topic of marriage. And in this passage, he comments, the biblical headship is simply the exercise of God-given authority whereby a man does all that is within his power to see that love, justice, and mercy rule his home even when fostering such qualities requires his own personal sacrifice. It's the picture of Christ. When Jesus says in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The husband as the head is to function as the servant leader of the home, to direct his household to a better apprehension of the grace of God shown to us in Christ. The first place that our children will know the gospel, that our wife will be sure of the gospel, will be in what is on display in the home by way of teaching and our attempts to live according to that grace. Chapel said also that husbands should follow the example of Christ who gave of himself to glorify the church. The radiant beauty that God desired for his spiritual spouse, he purchased with the price of his own blood. Our Lord submitted his life to glorifying his bride. This leads us to the second aspect. The husband is a leader, but he's also savior, and that word with a small s. Meaning he provides protection and sacrifice, laying himself down for his wife and by extension his family. Verse 23 says it this way. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Drawing the great known picture of Jesus as our savior, our sufficient savior. And and Paul's using this picture, this understanding of what Christ lays down for us and provides for us to help the husband understand how he's to lay himself down for his wife, to sacrifice for her. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did he do for the church? He gave himself up for it. That's the unmistakable picture that we have of what our saviorship looks like towards our wives. The husband is to consider the wife's life and the wife's salvation even before his own. The husband is called to lay down his life to the advancement of his wife. The husband takes inventory of the needs of his wife and foregoes his own needs if necessary for her. Now, the care is primarily spiritual. 
but it has to take into account the physical and the emotional as well. Because we realize that we're complex beings and all these things relate to one another. Everything really is ultimately spiritual as we see the world in our life through the lens of God's word and by his spirit. And so for husbands, recognizing, yes, it's a relationship with the Lord, but it's also our wives' physical needs and emotional needs, all of that. And yes, I know, it can be overwhelming to imagine how we can be this. Well, remember, we're putting Christ first. We're pushing him forward. We're, we're drawing her to rest fully in him, as we do. Uh, it, this is the simplicity of it. Yes, I realize the challenge of it. All of us do. But the beauty of the gospel is that it gives us all that's necessary. It never lacks when we come back to it. It's always, God always has more grace for us. And this is how we lead others. And most primarily, our wives. Now, the husband's a leader, the husband's savior in the sense of always drawing our wives to Christ. But there's another word, discipler, that I would like to apply based on the passage. Nurturer, uh, spiritual uh, helper or shepherd in the life of our wives. Provide spiritual nurture for her. Look at verse 25. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Now, we immediately think of Jesus in this way. He sanctifies us or makes us holy or, or sets us apart, makes us more like himself. And he cleanses us by the washing of water with the word, a reference to, to the baptismal rite coupled with the word of promise that comes with it. But now think of it in terms of how the husband works towards, in an ongoing way, helping his wife grow in Christ, to be more like Christ. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ saves us, justifies us, we have his righteousness. Then our life is, from that point of justification, is the sanctifying process. So growth and grace you're all going through now. Various stages we all are in, but the Spirit works in us to make us more and more like Christ, looking forward to the day when he comes again and we receive our, our full redemption as sons and daughters. We look forward to that. We'll stand before God, cleansed by Christ. So the husband here is depicted as working that way in this life to help his wife become more and more like Christ, growing in grace, growing in her walk, being nurtured, built up, edified. So we think of it in terms of when Christ comes again, his wife will along with the bride of Christ, be ready to meet Christ in this respect. It's a beautiful picture of the preparation that the wife undergoes for her wedding. That's the, the purposeful picture here. It's an allusion to the bridal path, or the bridal bath before Jewish and Greek weddings in the first century. Imagine in those days, especially, uh, that there would be a preparation over a period of days where she would literally bathe and be ready and then be wrapped in white linens in a, in a gown, much like today. You know, the last three Saturdays, we've had weddings here in this sanctuary. And one of the great moments of every wedding ceremony, one of my favorite moments, if not my favorite moment, is that time when everybody's anticipating the, the appearance of the bride. And the doors open up, and there she is in her beautiful white gown. Her hair's done like it's never been done before. She's prepared for this like she's never prepared before. She's so beautiful, and everyone turns to her and sees her. And she's, and then her poor father has to walk her down the aisle. I always feel so bad for the guy because he has to hand her off to some ghoul who is up here waiting for her. Anyways, 
And it's going to have to happen at some point if Jesus doesn't come back first, but that's enough of that. Anyways, you bring this beautiful, prepared woman to her husband. That's a beautiful picture. And the father hands off the bride and shrinks back into obscurity. Is there, you have this new couple together, one flesh. It's a beautiful picture of what God is doing in preparing his church. It's a beautiful picture of our ongoing effort as husbands in the life of our wife to help her grow in the grace of Christ. What a beautiful agency God's granted us to have this in the life of each other. To see her sanctified and grow in grace. And the great benefit that comes back to us is she is strengthened, our helper. She grows in grace. We grow in grace. There will be numerous times where you will be struggling in the grace of God. And the one who you've been helping to disciple in the grace of God will call you back from the brink. And remind you of your need for the gospel as well. It's a beautiful picture of this cleansing. Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. One of the most difficult features of marriage will be that we are by nature selfish people. And I think it's even more so, uh, I know personally, it's in my experience, men can become very self-absorbed and expect to be waited upon or that our hobbies or our work or our interests should be first. And we should always uh, expect that the household all appreciates this. That is not the message that we get at all, though, from the Bible. The Bible says you've been made one flesh. And so it's foolish to only serve yourself because you're dragging away the fullness of God's grace from you as a couple when you're only focused on one of you. And so the picture of one flesh helps us be reasonable and logical about how we should treat our wives. When we treat our wives well, when we nurture them, it necessarily benefits us as the one flesh union, carrying out God's role for us, and she carrying out God's role for her. Likewise, together, it's a beautiful picture that works in a way that no other sanctifying agent has its effect. You have the Word and the Spirit working together. And the primary human relationship that works to minister these is the marital relationship. Yes, God makes up for this. We're not, we don't, some people aren't married. Some people uh, were married and they're not any longer or their spouse died or something happens in this life that there are years spent where we're not with someone in marriage. So we recognize that's not the only way people grow, but as it's recognized for what it's ordained to be, it has a powerful impact. And it can, in a strengthened sense, help those around us who may be in a more difficult situation. This is the beauty of how it works itself out to others. Verse 30, because we are members of his body, again, the metaphor with Christ in the church. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This is taken directly from the foundations of marriage in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Verse 32 of our passage. The mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. John Stott said it very well as he said so many things. Stott said about the husband, he longs to see her liberated from everything which spoils her true feminine identity and growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, 
which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. To this end, too, the husband gives himself in love. Very quickly, what does it mean to love your wife? Well, we've been saying. But look at the three times that it's commanded in this passage. First, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does it mean to love? As Christ loved the church. That's our standard. Verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Christ loves his church. We love our own bodies, our one flesh union. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Three times the passage commands us to love our wives. And then Jesus is the picture woven through the passage of our standard. What is love? To love is to be Christ-like, to be sacrificial, to be cleansing, to give attention, to give care for, to empathize with. Love her with the love of Christ. It's not just the romantic and sentimental feelings we have with someone else. Those are important. Those are God-given. But it's far deeper than that. There's no higher standard conceivable for this love than we have in Christ. It's interesting. I know as, as hard as this is when you hear it to think to yourself, I think oftentimes people think, this is too hard. I can never be this kind of a husband. I'm not this good of a husband. And we give up a bit. But remember that even striving after in the most partial way will have huge impact in how your wife relates back. You know, I could have said it this bluntly. Brothers, if you really want your wife to submit to you, and everyone would probably perk up, how is she going to submit to me? Love her like Christ loves the church. Because she, she will naturally follow and help and lead and help in your leadership when we pour out this kind of, this kind of sacrificing love for her. On the norm. That's how it works. John Stott said it. A Christian husband who even partially fulfills this ideal preaches the gospel without ever opening his lips. For people can see in him that quality of love which took Jesus to the cross. Very bluntly too. Spend less time on your hobbies, politics, and your job and more time on loving your wife. Brian Chappell was commenting on these verses Especially, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says this so wonderfully, I I want to share it with you. A husband's love for his wife is intimately tied to his knowledge of Christ's love for us. So how we know the gospel will directly relate with how we love our wives. A full realization of Christ's sacrifice for us, a rest in his finished work for that, for the forgiveness of our sins, the security that comes from knowing that adoption, that will necessarily manifest itself in how we treat our wives. A husband's love for his wife is intimately tied to the knowledge of Christ's love for us. But Chapel goes on. If a husband or wife is not secure in Christ's love, if we need control over another to have some confidence in ourselves, then we cannot love as Christ requires. We will have no resource resources to serve one another if we are not sure of our standing in him. His love, his grace in Christ is relational fuel, Chapel says. We need that relational fuel, the grace of God in Christ. 
If we are running on empty, he says, not filled with the knowledge of his love for us in Christ, then we will inevitably, inevitably suck personal energy from the life of our marriage. Only when our hearts are brimming with the knowledge of his grace do we have the resources we need to maintain Christian marriage. Without a sure relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, we simply do not have the security or strength necessary to sacrifice for the good of another. Ultimately, Chapel concludes this section by saying, ultimately, the only resource that we have that enables us to love as Christ requires is his own love towards us sinners. Finally, to lead us into the next sermon from Ephesians 5, how is marriage a picture of Christ and the church? In verse 23, the husband is ahead of the wife, even as Christ is ahead of the church. Verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In verse 32 is where we'll let off from. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of Christ and the church really require more depth of understanding, digging deeper into it. But for now, we see, at least on a basic level, how this depicts Christ and the church. The husband, the groom, the wife, the bride, and the groom's great care for the bride to lay himself down for the perfection of his wife, for the sanctifying of his wife, so that they would be presented to God in glory together. Christ and the church likened to marriage. You know, we see throughout the Bible God using the marital relationship as a picture of himself with his people. But in the Old Testament, it's usually negative because Israel is constantly committing adultery. And so God is the, the forbearing husband, and Israel is the wayward wife. This is what Isaiah 54 depicts. Jeremiah depicts this. Ezekiel depicts it. And most vividly, Hosea is all about that. It's a picture of this. Through a real person and his real wife, a picture of God in Israel. The beauty is when Christ comes, the perfect groom, the sanctifying groom. He shows us the perfected picture of this relationship, and it's most manifested in marriage, as he has ordained it. I began by giving you that story about Roberts and McQuilkin. Maybe some of you were familiar with that story. But we have one such story in our own congregation. In 1957, Bill met and married Nancy. Nancy was a deep, bright, wise person. Nancy was strong in God's word. By Bill's own admission, she was far more advanced than him in faith and in learning. The Marches joined the church in 2004, and Nancy was immediately active in leading Bible studies and prayer. She was a particular encouragement to me with her deep thinking and profound biblical insight. She would give me books, uh, seminary or above-level books, and her library rivaled any pastor's. She humbly shared regularly her deep wisdom. In 2008, we had a celebration in the commons area for their 50th wedding anniversary. And their family was there. It was a great celebration seeing Bill and Nancy together in so much love still after these 50 years at that time. A few years later, Nancy was starting to have trouble remembering things. Bill noticed immediately, especially given Nancy's notable mental sharpness for so many years, many people noticed. The last 10 years of Nancy's life, she declined pretty rapidly, especially the last five years, to the point where she didn't even recognize Bill. Every day, Bill had to wake up and win her trust again to take her places. 
and he was happy to do so. After 55 years of marriage, had to win her over again every day. He cared for her daily. He took her places, kept her active. He brought her to worship every Sunday. Many of you will remember them sitting right in the middle. And he would tell people ahead of time, now don't overwhelm her because she can't remember who you are every time. Just act normal and like everything, everything is the way it should be because she'd be nervous for a while not knowing who everyone was, including him. He would ask her sometimes if she knew who he was and she clearly did not. But then she would say, you're very nice. She would tell people that she's here with this nice man. But then she would eventually say at times, he's my friend. He gave her safety. He cared for her. He laid his life down for his wife. They were married 61 years when Nancy died. Bill March is almost 90 now. He's, he's in a, a rehab center getting rehabilitated from uh, a bout with a flu vaccine, if you can imagine. 90 years old. He's still spry and he'll be back. He exercises every day. He loved his wife as Christ loved the church. That's what a real man is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word paints a beautiful picture of marriage. Indeed, no greater love can be depicted than the love of Christ for his church. Grant the husbands of Redeemer and the future husbands of Redeemer. Grant that we would love our wives and give ourselves up for them. Please do this as a way of manifesting the gospel to the world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's together respond by singing. We'll turn in our bulletins to Father of mercies in your word. Let's stand.